If there was a soundtrack to our scriptures today, I suggest the song Gotta Serve Somebody by the poet and prophet Bob Dylan. His voice is in tune, is it not, with Joshua's pep talk to the people of Israel, that long account of them being rescued from, uh, the, from slavery and uh, asking them who they're going to serve, and also with Jesus' response to the devil in the wilderness. If you listen to the whole song, Dylan lets no one off the hook, including the preacher, when he sings later on, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Right on. Dylan drives home the point that for everyone, who or what we will serve is a question that cannot go unanswered. Props to uh, Ethan here this morning for a good children's story. I, I was just thinking this morning, if I was going to write a book, it would be entitled, All I Really Needed to Know About Being a Follower of Christ, I Learned Listening to Children's Stories. But I confess that uh, I was not that inspired this week when I, last week, I looked at the text for this Sunday after agreeing to preach. For one, the Joshua narrative of the conquest of Canaan is filled with troublesome language for our modern ears, suggesting near annihilation of a people and forced displacement. And we have to wrestle with the dif difficult questions of interpretation particularly in light of how this has been used throughout history to justify, by divine right, forced displacement of other peoples. And with the recent marking of Columbus Day, we have to acknowledge that we are beneficiaries of displacement ourselves. But this is a question that I'll have to wait for another study or a longer sermon. I have appreciated our series so far uh, with a narrative lectionary in asking some of the deeper questions about the why and the context of some of these Hebrew stories that are often hard to interpret for our time. In our journey through the Hebrew Bible, we've learned that we serve a loving God who is deeply committed to our liberation, who is biased toward the poor and their well-being, and a patient God who is in faithful covenant with us even when we fail. Another reason I was not drawn to this text today is because it feels like the phrase, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, I feel like that phrase has been cheapened a little bit by its appearance on too many tacky wall hangings above the couch in a cozy uh, living room. My apologies if you have this in your house. <laughs> do we really know what this declaration means? And do our lives give evidence of it? Joshua's clarion call to the people of Israel to make a decision of whom they will serve sounds very much like an evangelical preacher making an altar call. If only it were that easy to walk the sawdust trail to the altar in response. As a child, I used to read these stories of the Israelites like it was a tragic novel. You know, for a time, the people would be faithful in worshiping Yahweh, then a period of falling away and worshiping idols, then a period of defeat at the hand of some enemy, and then a period of repentance and restoration and repeat again and again. 
And I was perplexed as to why it was so hard for the people of Israel to do the right thing and stay focused. People worship Yahweh over here, not this stone idol. But one of the things that strikes me in this passage is that Joshua essentially dismisses the people's promise to serve the Lord by saying that, no, you're going to go back to doing what you always wanted to do, even after you promise. He knows their wandering ways. Which begs the question, are we being honest, both institutionally and individually, about the many ways we fail to live up to our stated ideals and values and promises that we've made? One thing that was helpful for me in researching this text is that this narrative of Joshua was most likely compiled much later on when the Israelites were in exile. It is written from the perspective of a people who had seemingly failed in their commitment to follow Yahweh and had lost everything. So maybe this story is asking the question, do we only get one chance to do it right? The whole biblical narrative, not only the book of Joshua, is one of God's constant, steadfast love and persistent patience with God's people. Yes, they do not get it right all the time. In fact, quite often they do not. But that does not drive God away. Rather, the grand story shows God to be a relentless, creative pursuer of people, an all-consuming coach who does not give up on seeking to liberate us to choose life and to flourish in all the abundance that God has given us, all the many ways in which God has already liberated us. And this is good news indeed. So whatever Joshua meant to do to prepare the people for entering the land of Canaan in this speech, the editors of the scroll of Joshua are preparing its readers for the rest of the story. And now we add our own story to the mix. Can we see the dangers of idolatry as present today as they were in Joshua's time? In whom or what do we place our security and hope? Consider this. When we see that there are more guns in this country than there are people, and that our nation invests more in the military than the next nine top countries in the world combined, is this what we believe makes us safe? Is this not idolatry? Many of us look for financial security in bulking up our retirement accounts, life insurance policies, and investment portfolios. What does this indicate about what we trust for the future? Today, our political party of choice may indicate more about what we believe and value than our particular faith tradition. What does this tell us about our loyalties? In the U.S., the average amount of living space per person in a new house has doubled just in my own lifetime. What does this reveal about our deepest values? In the U.S., we continue to use fossil fuels at a much higher rate than our neighbors around the world, yet it is the poorest in the world who are suffering the most from climate change. What does this say about our capacity to serve a God who cares the most for the vulnerable in our world? 
Are we any less distracted by idols or any more capable of following God than were Joshua's listeners? Who will we serve? We, have, we all have choices at the intersection of everything that distracts us from that which is truly life-giving for ourselves and for our neighbors. As a church, as families, as individuals, we have decisions to make every day, big and small. Can we, with our choices, reflect the purposes of God to our children and to our neighbors who are watching us? There is much in our world that would try to convince us that, no, we don't have a choice. This is just the way things are, right? A recent revelation to Paula and me was our decision to replace one of our vehicles with an e-bike. For so long, we simply assumed that with two drivers and kids, we needed two cars. But after one of our cars stopped working, we discovered that in our current situation, maybe we didn't need two cars. Now granted, this choice is an incredibly privileged and irrelevant one in comparison to the living standards of most people, most of our neighbors in the world, but I count it as one small step. And it makes me question what other assumptions about the choices in my lifestyle need examination and liberation. And I have been inspired by watching so many of you make choices in your life to live generously and sacrificially with what you have. Let's encourage each other. Let's inspire each other by calling out those things that we see in each other as truly reflecting the character and nature of God among us. We need good questions to help clarify our purpose and focus in this world of constant distraction that pulls us in so many different directions. We live in a smorgasbord of choices that often create more anxiety and stress than freedom. And we need this liberating gift of God to choose life, to choose those things that are in tune to the character of a God who came close to us in the person and life of Jesus. So, while I was not initially inspired by this story, after sitting with this scripture for a while and hearing how other people were interacting with it and listening to a bit of Bob Dylan, I am inspired and encouraged by what I read here. I'm drawn to the story in that it might help us ask clarifying questions about the choices we make, big and small. What are the deeper values that guide us? How do our ongoing choices and decisions reflect the God we claim to serve? And I'm curious how you would respond in your own life to some of these questions. And I'm grateful for uh, Obi and Christopher, if you would come forward at this time. Um, I asked a number of people if they would share from their own lives um, some of their responses to these questions. What choices do you face in your household in saying yes to the values that reflect your commitment to following in the way of Christ and saying no to some of the temptations and distractions of the culture around us? Do you have a story to share about what these choices look like in your household? We go first. Uh, good morning. When John asked me to give some reflections on this topic, uh, you know, admittedly, despite our family spending years in the land of, you know, Canaan. I had to brush up a bit on the, um, 
culture and religion of the Canaanites. And I only got so far. But, uh, you know, I think what, uh, what I read um, and what is reflected in, you know, for example, the book of Leviticus uh, is a, a religion and culture that's very difficult, you know, I think, to understand, uh, you know, for, from, from our modern perspective. And, you know, it's polytheism, idols, uh, practices like child sacrifice, you know, according to the author of Leviticus. These were common practices. And so, you know, I think it really put in perspective, you know, this message we've been hearing today and also Phil's message last week about the Ten Commandments. Um, and it can be challenging, I think, to draw, you know, a meaningful analogy um, to our choices that we face today. Um, and I'm grateful that, that we do face, you know, a very different set of choices today. But, um, you know, when I reflected on, on this question, I guess, you know, the example that immediately came to my mind had to do with really technology or we might say ICT, you know, and its, its impact on, on our culture. Um, and I don't think that technology is, you know, can be compared to a god or an idol per se, but, you know, in some sense we might say that technology worship has become a common part of the dominant culture. Um, and some of the benefits, of course, are, are really amazing. And, you know, for example, uh, my wife and I both are able to work internationally focused jobs from here in Rockingham County, working from home. Um, we've been able to, you know, over our times overseas, communicate on video calls with, with our friends and family to stay in touch via social media, you know, with, with people all around the world. And of course, you know, John gave that example of the e-bikes, you know, for his family. And uh, there are just so many uh, incredible benefits um, to us in our daily lives. But um, at the same time, you know, I do have concerns um, about the potential negative impacts of technology on our culture. And it's something that, you know, I do wrestle with every day. Um, especially as the dad of uh, two middle, middle schoolers. Um, the statistics tell us, you know, that American teenagers are spending more time than ever before in front of a screen. Um, in 2021, one study found that teenagers from low-income households are spending over nine hours a day in front of a screen. And I just found this shocking. Um, and to me, it does raise, you know, serious questions. What are the cultural, what are the spiritual impacts, you know, of this pervasiveness of technology in our lives? Um, so where do we draw the line? And um, just speaking for, for our household, I would say we, we imperfectly, you know, do our best to try to make the most of these benefits. Um, our family members, we're, we're currently taking language lessons. We take music lessons over Zoom. Um, but at the same time, you know, we try to minimize the harms. And, uh, you know, every day we're intentionally 
limiting our time in front of a screen and trying to compensate by going outdoors, you know, interacting in person. Um, and, you know, overall just trying to be conscious on a day-to-day -day basis. In our use of technology, you know, how can we enhance what is uh, life-giving, you know, as, as John put it, and uh, how to minimize or, or eliminate what is harmful. Thank you. Somewhere along the way, I heard that what you worship is what you wake up thinking about every morning. I often wake up thinking about coffee. <laughs> What's worse, my favorite coffee mug does not say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. <laughs> no, it, procl it proclaims Mr. Right. The people in the Old Testament story today were faced with a seemingly convenient choice. Will you serve the God who destroyed other peoples to give you their land, cities, and vineyards? Or will you not serve that God and he will bring disaster on you? Didn't anybody in the whole community there even try to shed light on the problems with this? Anyway, in the New Testament text also, Jesus was faced with a choice to serve that same God or the devil. There are people who truly choose to serve God, sometimes at great cost to themselves, and I admire them. Sure, I value things like love of neighbor, creative inspiration, not stealing. But the questions I often ask myself about my life choices are revealing. Am I soaking up the time I have with my family? What responsibilities can I neglect so I can play more guitar? How can I make a difference in the world without inconveniencing myself too badly? The times when I do feel like I am serving God, I might prefer to say living in the light or doing justice. Those times it's often just a matter of situational convenience. For example, for a couple of years, I was a war tax resistor. As someone who opposes war, not paying war taxes was and still is the right thing to do. At the time, it was also inevitable because I was in grad school and our household income was low enough that we didn't have to pay taxes anyway. <laughs> My commitment to not paying war taxes continues to this day, but ebbs and flows in direct correlation to my income. Another example, I believe that I bear a moral responsibility to reduce my carbon footprint. However, my family and I really wanted to take a cross-country road trip last year, and so we did. To save money, we made do with the vehicle we had, our gas-guzzling minivan, and we eased our carbon consciences by telling ourselves that at least we didn't have one of those huge RVs we saw all around us on the highway. By the way, if anyone here has an RV that you'd like to sell cheap, let me know. I've always wanted one. Mid-sized, please, to match my morals. I'm pretty sure that when it comes to serving God, 
I make choices based on what I think is good for me and my family more than anything else. When, if, I get doing justice or living in the light right, it's most likely because doing so happens to suit me just fine. Despite what my coffee mug says, this morning I am not claiming to be right, just realistic. Are my observations made with a shot of cynicism? Perhaps. Am I waking up to smell the coffee or also somehow to see the light? Thank you, Christopher and, and Obi, for your honest and vulnerable uh, reflections and questions. Uh, I think if we were to do an inventory of our choices, uh, if anyone was to do an inventory of my choices, they would see I'm a very complicated person. We're all a mix, right? Some of our choices reflect our deeper, deepest values, others do not. Um, and I think we're all wrestling with this, uh, if we're honest about it. And it reveals that we're a complicated mix of our values and ideals. And I think we need to hold our complicated stories reverently but lightly uh, with a bit of humor, I think, can, can uh, help us uh, see, see some of our, our blind spots. Uh, but also to let our stories live in creative tension with who we are seeking to become, right? We are not the sum of all our failures and weaknesses, but the sum of a loving God who is liberating us to become a more just and merciful people in the image of Christ. And I think this is part of what we are called to choose as Christ followers. Choose this day who you will serve. May we choose a God who is unimaginably bigger than the stories we tell, a God whose every story begins and ends in love.